0: I'd like to begin by uh, reading uh, from John chapter 14. And really, this is picking up from uh, what was read uh, during communion today. Uh, That was from John chapter 13. This is from John chapter 14. It's, of course, the same evening. It's the very same evening. And I'm going to be reading to you from... John chapter 14, verses 15 through 26. And Jesus says these words to his disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, the other Judas, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for these words of Holy Scripture. Thank you for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that caused them to be written down for our edification preserved through centuries for us, the very Word of God for us to feed on, to nourish our souls as a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Lord, I pray that you would help us today as we look into your Word to gain a heart of understanding so that we might know you better and be better able to serve you in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. Help us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, these words were spoken by Jesus to to His disciples the night before He would die on the cross. The disciples were troubled. They were frightened. They were anxious. And with good reason. He had just told them that He was going away. There had been growing opposition to Jesus and it was about to become violent, they could sense it. Now, what we read here emphasizes the importance that Jesus placed on the disciples keeping his words. If you were listening carefully, you heard Jesus say more than once, actually a number of times, to keep his commandments, keep my words. This is what we call obedience especially a commandment that he had given that very night just before, as we heard in communion. It was a new commandment, he said. It was a commandment to love, commandment to love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Four times he repeats himself on that point. And especially strong is his first statement, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John would later say in his first letter, anyone who says I know him or I love him and does not keep his commandments, he is a liar. So those are strong words. Jesus wants them to know that obedience is a big deal. Our obedience to Christ, to his commandments, to his law, especially Summed up in that law of love is a very big deal to our Lord. And closely tied to it is another emphasis that he wants to bring out that night. He wants to reassure them of his love for them. His continuing care for them. And specifically, he says he's going to help them by sending them another helper. He's going to comfort them by sending them another comforter. He's going to send them another, and that word another is a word that means another of the same kind. In Greek, there are two different words for other. One of them is heteros, and that's another of a different kind. If you are heterosexual, you love someone of a different kind, right? But the word he uses here is another of the same kind. The word is alos, and it means another of the same kind. So when Jesus says, I'm going to send you another helper, another comforter, another as of similar to me, of the same kind. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you, the one who loves me, will keep my commands, my Father will love Him, I will love Him, and we will come to Him and make our home with Him. Did you hear that? God the Father, God the Son says, if you love me and keep my commandments, keep my words, we will come to you and we will make our home with you. And the grammar there indicates an ongoing living arrangement. We'll abide with you. We will set up our domicile with you. In other words, it's not going to be we'll drop in once in a while when it's convenient. He's talking about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit making their home somehow with the believer, the follower of Jesus Christ. Now, this comforter, this helper, he goes on to call the spirit of truth. And Jesus says about this comforter, he dwells with you presently, but he will be in you, in you. So presumably, this promise of divine indwelling by the Father and the Son in the life of the disciple is accomplished by this helper, this spirit of truth who is called, in verse 26, the Holy Spirit. Now, this is astounding, is it not? The same Spirit that hovered over the face of the deep at the dawn of creation, the same Holy Spirit that inspired the prophets, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, is to dwell in you and me, the Christian believer, the follower of Of Jesus Christ, to actually take up residence in us. And what will He do? He will help, He will comfort, He will teach, He will bring to your remembrance all things that Jesus has said. Now, we we have to emphasize here that these words were first spoken to whom? To the apostles, right? Jesus' apostles. And what his words have reference to, first and foremost, is to them. Because they were to occupy a very important and distinct role in God's redemptive work. Because the apostles were the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and ministry. And they were commissioned in a special way as eyewitnesses To mark who he is, what he had done, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and as eyewitnesses, they would actually write these things down so that we have them here today before us. Otherwise, we would know nothing of Jesus Christ. Their role is absolutely essential. God, through his holy prophets, Old Testament, and holy apostles, New Testament, has given us the Scriptures and if we didn't have this, we wouldn't know anything about Jesus. Apart from the writings of Scripture, the only references we have in secular history are one obscure one from Josephus, another one from Suetonius that was a, a Roman historian. We wouldn't know anything about the Lord. That's why the Word of God is so very precious. And these apostles were eyewitnesses. Now, the word witness in Greek is the word martyr, marturion. It's Martyr, okay? In other words, they saw something and testified to something that they were so sure of that they were willing to bet their life on it. And you know what? They did. The apostles, with the exception of John, who apparently lived and died a natural death as a prisoner, sealed their witness with their blood. Now, the promise that is made in this passage is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And it was promised to them, but the promise of the Holy Spirit is not only to them, it is also to us. The promise of the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see a little later, the promise is for every believer, to everyone whom the Lord our God shall call to himself. So today, I want to tell you about a few of the things that the Holy Spirit does for you, the Christian believer. And some of this might be uh, backing up a bit to things that you've already heard, but that's okay. I'm happy with that. We need to hear things rehearsed over and over again so they can get down into our hearts. And if you're here today, as I said, this promise of the Holy Spirit is a promise for the believer. But if you're here today and you are not a Christian I want you to know that you can become one. I want to speak to you for just a moment if you're here to tell you you can become a Christian. It's at the same time simple and hard. It's simple because in order to become a believer, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. That's all you have to do. You have to believe that He lived, that He died, and that He rose from the dead. And as Paul said in Romans chapter 10, if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and if you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That is simple. But it's also hard. Because if you confess Jesus Christ is Lord, that means that you can no longer be Lord. He must be Lord. And that involves following Him no matter what. And that's why Jesus told those who thought they'd like to follow Him, "Hmm, you better count the cost. Because you know what the cost is? The cost is your life. If you will not deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, you cannot be his disciple. And taking up the cross is just another way of saying that you're giving yourself to die. So the cost of discipleship, it'll cost you your life. But you know, at that price, it's a great bargain. Because if you lay down your life, Christ gives you eternal life. Thing is, though, you no longer live for yourself, but you live for him who lived and died for you. So becoming a Christian is at the same time the simplest thing in the world. A child can do it. But it's also hard because you can no longer be Lord. Jesus is Lord. And the overwhelming majority of the people in this room have come to the place where they have decided, I want to follow Jesus. I commend you for that decision. I want to confirm you in that. And tell you that if that's the case with you, the Holy Spirit is promised to you. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit brings with Him the very presence of God. Because the Holy Spirit is God. You see? Christians are Monotheists. That means we believe in one God, just like the Jews. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We believe in one God, but that one God is revealed in Scripture as existing in three persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And there is one God. That's not a contradiction. It is a mystery. It's a mystery that we should adore. We call this mystery the Trinity. Well, the Holy Spirit manifests God's presence. When I became a Christian 45 years ago, it was not the result of a philosophical search for truth. And it wasn't a return to a faith learned in childhood, because I had no childhood faith to return to. And it wasn't because I was convinced of propositional arguments for the existence of God. The reason I became a Christian was that I had a direct encounter with the reality of God through the Holy Spirit. He demonstrated to me personally that He was real. And he did it in ways that subjectively I was convinced. Some other day, perhaps when we get together on that Wednesday night, I can tell you a little bit of my subjective experience. It matched up with Scripture. That made it valid. Okay, You have had your own subjective experiences with the Spirit of God, no doubt. And if they are indeed experiences with the Spirit of God, they will match up with Scripture as well. What I mean to say here is that your scripture is not authoritative. Your, your experience, rather, is not authoritative. Scripture is authoritative. Don't let me get that mixed up, Lord. Your experience, whatever it may be, is not authoritative in the final sense. It may have happened to you, that's fine, but we can have false spiritual experiences. I'll, I'll just give you one example. Shortly after being born again, I may have said this before, I may be repeating myself, and if I repeat myself, it's what happens when you get old. Okay, and if I repeat myself, it's what happens when you get old. All right. And if I repeat, no, I'm sorry. I'm driving in a car and I pick up a hitchhiker. This is back when when we did those sorts of things. And I was witnessing to him about Jesus. This is Nebraska Avenue, northwest gets in the car. And I said, I have had an experience where I have come to to find truth and light in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And this guy's eyes got real big. And he said, I, too, have received light. I have received light through Guru Maharaji. I thought, dang. What do I say now? I know what he's got is not the right thing, but I had no basis on which to argue with him. He's got light, I got light. But Well, that sent me back to the drawing board. It sent me back to Scripture where I found that my experience was rooted in the historical facts of the gospel. Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and Christ's sending of the Spirit. I don't know what he could point to. But but that see, it's so absolutely important that we realize whatever experiences we have must be rooted in the facts of Scripture, which are actually the facts of history as well. All right, so direct encounter... With the power and reality of God through the Holy Spirit, it makes a difference. And there are different ways that God's presence is expressed, that God's reality is expressed. I understand you've learned some of these things already. For, for instance, God's saving presence. We're regenerated, we're born again through the Holy Spirit, right? Paul wrote to Titus, he said, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we're born again by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. But he wasn't telling you got to go do something. He's saying something has to happen to you. What has to happen? You must be born again. How does that work, said Nicodemus? Can a man enter again into his mother's womb and be born No, 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 no. It's by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's like the wind. You hear the wind and you see its effect. You hear the sound thereof and you see its effect, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is of those born of the Spirit. It's something that has to happen to us. Just like your birth naturally happened to you. You were the passive recipient of Life and birth as an act of God through your parents. To be born again is also an act of God. An act of God's Spirit bringing us to life. Yeah, we have a part in it after the fact. After we're born again, the first thing we do when we come to life is believe and repent. But this is the work of the Spirit of God. Also, the Holy Spirit brings God's sanctifying presence. One of the Holy Spirit's primary activities is to make us holy. He is, after all, the Holy Spirit. He wants to make us more and more like Jesus. He wants to bring fruit forth in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness. And, that's the, and, and also, uh, in, in regard to this, the Holy Spirit brings conviction. That's one of the ways He helps sanctify us. So you're thinking, oh, should I click on that? And the Holy Spirit says, no, 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 no. And if you go ahead and do it, what happens? You get further convicted and you feel that you have grieved the Holy Spirit. And if you're wise, you learn from that. And the next time you're tempted to go there or do that and the Holy Spirit says, no, no, no. Say, okay, thank you. And then you have passed the test. And you grow stronger in your faith. And you grow wiser. This is the Holy Spirit's sanctifying presence. And then there's God's guiding presence to be led by the Spirit. More and more, this has been my constant prayer. To keep in step with the Spirit, I think just about every day I say, Lord, please lead me by Your Spirit. Help me to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the sinful nature. Because that sinful nature, that flesh is still there and it wants to pull me off. But I say, no, no, I want to keep in step with the Spirit. I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to bear the fruit of the Spirit. In what I say, in where I go, in what I read. What I talk about, what I think about. And as that happens, I'm guided by the Spirit. Because as Jesus said, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Helper, He'll not just be with you, but He'll be in you to teach you and to remind you, to guide you along the pathway of life. So, led by the Spirit, we can walk in the Spirit. We're on a journey, we are on a dangerous journey. We're on our own personal pilgrim's progress, each one of us. And there are many twists and turns. There are many dangers, toils, and snares. God has given us Scripture as a road map. But He doesn't just throw us the map and say, okay, figure it out. He actually comes into our very lives to guide and direct us from within. From within. So we can be assured that we will arrive at our attended destination. Of course, in all this we recognize that it's the precious Holy Spirit as a person. This is very important. He's not a force. This is not some Yoda-like eastern force. That to us is a way we can go forward, Luke. No, he's not a force. He's a person. He's not an energy. He's every bit as much a person as the Father and the Son. Scripture describes him using different similes. He's like the wind, powerful. He's like fire, purifying. He's like water, life-giving and refreshing. These are similes that are used. He's like these things. And the reason that we have to use these words, they're only poor attempts within the limits of human language to try to describe the indescribable God. But there's one more dimension And this is what I want to spend the remainder of my time talking about this morning, and that is the Spirit's empowering presence, His empowering presence. Because in addition to regenerating and sanctifying and guiding us, the Holy Spirit empowers us. And I'd like to tell you, first of all, how it all went down for Jesus' first disciples. When we last talked about them, it's Thursday night, and they're scared. I would be too. At the end of Luke's gospel, though, after Jesus was crucified and risen from the dead, but before he ascended to heaven, this period between the resurrection and the ascension... This period of time, Jesus actually was with his disciples. Now, that must have been amazing because he was glorified at that point. And we read just a little few snippets here and there of his interactions with the disciples after the resurrection but before the ascension. And at one point, he told them this, the end of Luke's gospel, Behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city, stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. And then the gospel ends and Luke picks up the thread of his narrative in the sequel to, uh, to, to Luke and that is the book of Acts, right? Right. And while staying with them, in he, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. It's just like at the end of Luke, right? Which he said, you heard from me. But then he adds this. He says, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's the beginning of Acts. So the promise of the Father is connected somehow with being baptized in, in the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus said a few verses later, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the end of the earth. All right, ten days later, 120 of Jesus' disciples were gathered in an upper room. And Acts chapter 2 and verse 1 through 4 says that when the day of Pentecost arrived, when it was fully come, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak In other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance, as the Spirit enabled them. And, of course, this is the mighty Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit that changed everything. Some have called it the birthday of the church. I don't think that's quite accurate. The church had existed long before that. We can even talk about a church in the Old Testament. But this is the time when the church was empowered ...universally by the Holy Spirit. And the immediate result was a new power, a new boldness... ...a new boldness to witness to Jesus' resurrection life... ...and to bear witness of that life to others. The Feast of Pentecost was going on... ...and Jews from all parts of the empire had flooded into Jerusalem... ...so it swelled in its population... And as these disciples poured out of that upper room and began to speak the mighty works of God in languages unknown to them but known to the foreigners who had come into town, everyone was amazed. The disciples were amazed and the people hearing them were amazed. And a crowd gathered and Peter standing as one of the eleven apostles seized the opportunity and preached a mighty sermon. And as he reached the climax of his message, he said, This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are hearing and seeing let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified the result is that when they heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles brothers what shall we do and peter said to them repent And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God shall call. Wow. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the promise of. Of the Father. To receive this promise is to be baptized in the Spirit. It results in power to be Christ's witnesses. Now, these people that heard Peter's preaching were cut to the heart. They knew they had to do something. What shall we do? And Peter immediately said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive this gift of the Spirit, for the promise is for you, Jewish people, and for your children, the descendants of the Jews, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. That little phrase, those who are far off, that's a reference to Gentiles. They were far off from the promises and covenants of God. But Peter is saying that this Holy Spirit, this promise, is not just for the Jewish people. Yeah, Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first, but the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Do we have any Gentiles here today? Probably most of you. If you're not a Jew, you are a Gentile. Now, I happen to be, some of you know, I happen to be half Jewish and half Gentile, so I kind of straddle this world. Who is the promise for? It's for the people of God. It's for the Jews, their descendants, and for all who are far off. This promise is for Gentiles, for all who are far off, for as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. So my question to you, has God called you to himself? If he has then the promise is for you. And looking at these scriptures, we can say that to be baptized in the Spirit is to be filled with the Spirit, is to be immersed in the Spirit by the risen Christ, resulting in an increased awareness of God and empowerment for life and service. The purpose of of this promise of the Father is spiritual empowerment for the believer, for spiritual growth, and for spiritual witness. As Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. Again, witnesses, Martyrion. You'll You'll be convinced enough that you'll be able to say, yeah, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And I am so certain of that, should you say it costs me my life, I will say I cannot deny him. Wow. All right, how does this take place in our lives? Well, listen, let me make it very clear. We believe that everyone who is a Christian has the Holy Spirit. He has been, she has been, regenerated. By the Spirit. If you are a Christian here today, it's because the Spirit of God is in you. But when we talk about being baptized or filled, there are some different points of view that Christians have. Some believe that this baptism or this filling of the Holy Spirit occurs at the point of regeneration, of being born again, when a person first becomes a Christian. Uh, and let me just say something to you uh, today. Um, you know, I became a Christian when I was 22, and I had a dramatic conversion experience. It was so dramatic, I lost all my friends. I, I should have lost my friends because we were dealing pounds of marijuana and things like that. I guess you can do that these days, and it's no problem. But back then, that was a big problem. Uh, but there are, there are people who were raised in Christian homes, and they, they, they don't remember when they didn't believe in Jesus And they don't have a dramatic experience of conversion and the power of the whole... And and they think, oh, wow, maybe I need to get into drugs or something so I can... No, 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 no. No, please, no. Young people, if you were raised in a Christian home, oh, how blessed you are. Because you've come to know the faith at a young age and you haven't had to... But you're still... You you were still a sinner. (laughs) I mean, you were not pure. You're not guiltless. You need your sins forgiven. And if you become a Christian, you become even more aware of the fact that you're a sinner who's saved only by grace because you're more sensitive to the things of the Spirit. But when we talk about this business of being filled with the Spirit or baptized with the Spirit or receiving the gift of the Spirit or the promise of the Spirit, there are some different points of view. Some believe, as I said, that it occurs at regeneration when a person's born again. There are others, especially Pentecostal or charismatic Christians, that see this as an experience distinct from regeneration. And again, that was my own personal experience. I came in contact with charismatic Catholics who foolishly actually just assumed that I was a Christian. And they said, oh, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I said, I do? And they said, yeah. And I was starting to come to believe in Jesus. And, I, you know, and, they, and they prayed for me that I'd be filled with the Spirit. And I was open to that. I guess I had become a Christian. It wasn't all clear to me. I mean, I was coming out of a background of no knowledge of the Bible, never been in churches, nothing like that at all. I was just starting to consider the claims of Christ and starting to read the Bible. But I had a dramatic encounter with the Holy Spirit. And it changed me. Like I said, I'll tell you about it if you're interested when we get together on that Wednesday night. But these are some other points of view. Pentecostals, charismatics often see a baptism in the Holy Spirit as a distinct experience subsequent to conversion. And that's why in many Pentecostal churches... You'll find people that will put this idea of being baptized in the Spirit as a mountaintop spiritual experience. And once you've got the baptism, you have arrived. And some of you that come out of Pentecostal backgrounds, you know what I'm talking about. And in those churches, often what happens is once you get that experience, you've arrived, there's no higher where where, There's nowhere you can go any higher. So you just basically plateau And um, if anybody asks you about your spiritual life, say, well, I've got the baptism. And they kind of plateau. But, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about, actually, even the term the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Did you know? It doesn't occur in Scripture. It does occur in that verb form of baptized in the Spirit, but not in that noun form. So it's not really something you get and you've got it. As a matter of fact, the way Scripture talks about it, Paul makes this clear in Ephesians 5, is we should be continually being filled with the Spirit. Do you remember when he said, do not be drunk with wine, that's dissipation. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. But the verb tense is a present continual. We should continue to be being filled with the Spirit. It should be an ongoing desire on our part to experience God and God's spirit in a continual way. So even though there are good both those different points of view have have some good things to commend them, okay? You can find scriptures that will say it. I think transcending both these views, there are some clear truths that all Christians can affirm. And that is that God promises the spirit to every Christian believer and wants every Christian to experience the Holy Spirit's empowering presence for life and service on an ongoing basis. So all Christians should seek to continually be filled with the Spirit. All Christians should live in a constant dependence upon the Holy Spirit. As Paul said in Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. We should all pursue the things that the Spirit prizes. Mainly love for God and love for others. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit. In chapter 12, he talks a lot about them. In chapter 13, do you know what he talks about? Love, love that's right. Because the Corinthians were, mm, they had a problem with spiritual pride. And so, in the middle of a discussion on the gifts of the Spirit, And then further on prophecy in verse 14, you have 1 Corinthians 13 where he starts out by saying, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. So we should all agree on that. The most important thing to pursue is love. And then we should all agree in a belief in the continuity of the gifts and operations of the Holy Spirit for effective Christian living and service today. That means, maybe you're familiar with these terms, maybe you're not, we are what you call continuists. We believe that the power and gifts of the Holy Spirit continue through the apostolic era era, and all throughout the church age and are with us today. There are other wonderful Christian people who would describe themselves as cessationists. That means they believe that the gifts of the Spirit ceased at the close of the apostolic era, at the end of the first century. And there are no gifts of the Spirit today. There's wonderful Christian people, I know many wonderful Christian people that believe that, and I, I take nothing away from them. They're wonderful folks, but that that's not what we believe. We believe that the gifts of the Spirit continue. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. He says to the Corinthians, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that those spiritual gifts will continue until Christ returns and then they'll no longer be necessary when that which is perfect has come. Alright, so I mentioned spiritual gifts. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. There are spiritual gifts. And believe it or not, each one of us has been given spiritual gifts. In the New Testament, there are three lists that are given that have to do with spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 is the one that many of us are familiar with. It talks about... Gifts like miracles and tongues and prophecy and word of knowledge and... Okay. There's another list given in Romans chapter 12. And this is a little bit different. It talks about gifts of the Spirit such as serving and teaching and exhorting and giving and mercy. Another sort of list in 1 Peter 4. Well... These lists are not necessarily exhaustive. There may be a gift of encouragement, for instance. Maybe there's a gift of boldness. Maybe you can suggest others. I think they're suggestive. I think an interesting thing about the gifts of the Spirit is some of them appear to be rather dramatic and others rather mundane, like the gift of serving. doesn't sound as exciting as the gift of miracles, does it? But it's still called a gift of the Spirit. We need to be aware that the Spirit of God moves in ways that sometimes escape our notice. Okay? Like, for instance, to illustrate, have you ever noticed the high voltage power lines that run through the countryside? Right? And, you know, once you notice them, probably you just don't don't even give them another thought. They're wires. Big deal. But there's enough power running through those wires to light a city, right? And so uh, I have a friend that's a contractor and, uh, um, in, in the church uh, at Covenant Life, and he was working on a house on Route 108, and he inadvertently knocked down the main trunk line between Alney and Sandy Spring. And he said when that, when that hot wire hit the ground, the sand at the base of the pole turned into glass. That's how hot it was. Okay, that's a wire. Okay, all right. Now I want you to look around the room at your fellow Christians. I give you permission. Look, yeah, no, look around at your fellow. Look around. Give you permission to stare for just a moment. Okay. What do you think? Not very impressive. Pretty ordinary. That's what they think about you, too. Okay. And yet, like those wires, these ordinary Christians that you're looking around at are actually temples of the Holy Spirit. And they're vessels. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. And the Spirit of God in you... As you witness to the reality of Christ and share that witness with others, both in your words and your deeds, the power of God can actually move and touch another life and be a means of bringing that person from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. That's pretty powerful. You can bring glory to God. So when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, did you know that a word of encouragement spoken at the right time can have an absolutely stunning effect upon another person? Or that gift of helps that seems so mundane can be a means that God uses I mean, there's all kinds of gifts going on in this church right now. Some are using their gifts to minister to children. Some are making it possible for you to hear my voice by manning the sound ministry. So volunteer to help out. All kinds of things going on that make it possible. Drove up here today. There are always signs there that tell us this is where the church is. There's a nice sign that uh, says Living Hope Church. As you come in the building, I noticed some, somebody put that up, and I noticed somebody put it up with enough care that it actually wasn't cockeyed. It was. I noticed things like I'm the kind of guy that straightens a picture if it's cockeyed. I noticed things like that. I said, somebody cares enough to get here early, loading up all of the books and all of the equipment week after week, year after. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit that makes a lot. Amen. Thank you, folks. I remember. I remember one period in my life when my future was unclear, and I was very discouraged. And a brother just called me for no other reason but to encourage me. I still look back on that years and years ago as a turning point. The gift of helps, gift of administration, the gift of leadership, the gift of giving generous, genera, gener, generously. Uh, all of these are used by God to to build up, to strengthen. They are precious gifts, yet some of them seem more ordinary than others. Prophecy and tongues and healings. But they're all manifestations of the same Spirit. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. And we're going to pick up next week and continue the study by looking at the specific gifts of prophecy in tongues, because they're easily misunderstood as to what are they for and, you know, what's going on here. But I want to close my time today with you by taking us back to where we started, the night before the crucifixion, a night of anxiety, a night of uncertainty and fear. It was a rough night for the disciples. None rougher. It can never be that bad for us as it was for them because we live on this side of the cross. You see what I'm saying? It can never be that bad because we know that Christ is risen. We also have the Holy Spirit in us, the Comforter, the Helper. But we still live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's in rebellion against its maker. We still need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need His comfort, His guidance. We need His help in interpreting the Scriptures. We need His help in interpreting our own personal circumstances. Just like our brother shared during communion. We need His help. And it's not that the Holy Spirit is this kind of force that we feel. It's, do not equate the presence of the holy spirit with goosebumps it's deeper than that no my friends jesus said that night to his followers let not your hearts be troubled you believe in god believe also in me what he was telling them then and what he would tell us now is you And I still must walk by faith. There is no substitute for walking by faith. So when Jesus says, believe also in me, he's giving them the most simple instruction, the best instruction, the most profound advice that he can. Trusting in him is always the way forward and the way through, no matter what you are facing. And we will never in this life get to a place where we no longer have to trust Him. When we walk by faith and not by sight, that means we can't see, we can't feel. It's like flying by radar. But the Holy Spirit is there to guide us. So my Christian friend, if you have received the Spirit of adoption, that's the Spirit of God, who bears witness with your human spirit, and tells you that you are indeed a child of God, take heart. Your Heavenly Father and your Lord, Jesus Christ, and your Holy Spirit, the Comforter, are not just with you, they are in you. They have made their home with you. They will not let you fall. And when you cannot sense their presence, it's only because they wish to strengthen your faith which is of great value. Let us pray.